Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Well, we had an election Tuesday night, and <laughs> what an election we had. Some big wins for mainstream Republican candidates in the statewide races. Governor Brad Little, Lieutenant Governor's candidate Scott Redke, State Superintendent's candidate Debbie Critchfield, Secretary of State's candidate Phil McGrain. But some big wins for conservatives as well. Raul Labrador capturing the nomination for attorney general. And a lot of turnover in the legislature. The upshot of that is it looks like the Senate is going to be a lot more conservative. House, hard to tell at this point. To break it all down, I, I sat down on Thursday with two of my favorite people, um, Stephanie Witt from Boise State University, one of my favorite political science professors from my, uh, from my grad school days, and Clark Corbin, who is uh, covering politics for the Idaho Capital Sun, and y'all know uh, was uh, here at Idaho Education News for several years and co-hosted the Extra Credit podcast back in the day. We talked Thursday about what happened and where things go from here. Interview runs a couple of minutes longer than our usual podcast segment, but I think it's well worth your while. Here's what we had to say. Well, Dr. Witt and Clark, thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. We've had a whole almost 48 hours now to process what happened with these elections. Uh, I wanted to ask you both for your biggest takeaway, your biggest surprise maybe from Tuesday night. Uh, Dr. Witt, why don't you uh, get us started? Well, there, there are so many things we could focus on. I would say that the statewide races were a victory for the mainstream Republicans, mm -hmm. uh, with the exception, of course, of Labrador coming in as attorney general. But uh, Little winning easily, Bedke winning easily, McGrain sneaking in. Uh, again, I think that's Representative Moon and Senator Souza splitting that oh, yeah. Yeah, the Trump mm -hmm. never lost vote. And, uh, and then uh, the su a surprise to me, anyway, when Critchfield beats Ybarra and um, becomes the new superintendent of public instruction. All around, those are mostly traditional mainstream Republicans. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with Dr. Witt. Um, I, I think if you ask about a surprise, a surprise might be Superintendent Ibarra finishing in third place in her primary election. And, and another surprise, although we knew this going into it, the overall number of Republican incumbent legislators who lost their primary election bids on Tuesday. We were just talking, it's either 19 or 20, depending on how uh, how you look at that right. seat in the Lewiston area where there was a, a substitute serving. Uh, but that, coupled with the retirements, um, it's really interesting. We had talked heading into this election about how it was likely to be one of the more consequential elections in recent years because of all these factors coming together. The redistricting process last year where we redrew all of Idaho's legislative districts and congressional districts to reflect the new population data. That forced some retirements. That moved some legislators into new districts that might have been a little bit less politically friendly to them. It pitted a couple of incumbents against each other. Um, and then we had some open races. And so we were talking the other day 40, 42 out of the mm -hmm. seats in yeah. the Idaho legislature, out of the 105 seats, uh, will be new next year. And so we can kind of get into some of the individual races and then look at, ahead at the, uh, the state of the legislature. Yeah, definitely. I want to get to the upheaval within the legislature, and I do want to get to the superintendent's race, of course. But I, I want to start with the governor's race a little bit, simply because I'm kind of surprised that we're sitting here after all of the hype about this election between Brad Little and Janice McGee and, and the dueling executive orders, and even down to the final days of the, the election, the national attention that this 
that this race seemed to be drawing because of McGeehan's Trump endorsement or what have you. This was really kind of a, a, whole, a whole hum race after, after all of that. Yeah, it was a lot of buildup. And mm-hmm. it, it is rare. You know, we, we know of, what, one other time since 1932 or only since 1932. Right. We've never had a sitting lieutenant governor challenge the governor of the same party. That's, you know, I, I joked uh, the other day that they should have canceled the day after election unity rally the day that McGeehan filed for office, right? Because it's a clear sign that we're not on the same page, yeah. that, uh, that there is a, that she at least was reading the room to think there's a significant enough faction within the Republican Party who is unhappy with Little that she went to all the trouble to do this. But, but there wasn't that faction, obviously, by the way the votes turned out. I mean, you know, I've got my trusty cheat sheet here. <laughs> Little carried 40 of the 44 counties. Uh, McGeehan only won a handful of the counties up north and never really seemed to challenge Little heading into this election. How come? Well, he had twice the amount of money that she (laughs) did and all of the endorsements from those traditional Republicans. I I mean, I don't have the... Clark probably has better numbers on this, but it looked to me like around 30, 32% was who was of the voters in the Republican primary were picking those further right candidates like McGeehan and Representative Giddings and Brandon Durst and you know that so that's a third of the people who showed up to vote it's a sizable uh, percentage of the voting public but you don't get anything for being close it's not mm-hmm. like horseshoes you know you either get right. it or you don't and and they didn't yeah, that one, that race was called early. It was called before 10.30 p.m. on Tuesday night, so just an hour and a half after polls closed um, in North Idaho. I, I think all of us were expecting Governor Little to be reelected. We talk about some of the unforced errors and some of right. the mistakes that Lieutenant Governor McGeehan made. And I want to ask you about that because, I mean, you covered McGeehan in the legislature. You, you, you know her from well back, and you've obviously watched this campaign and the— Problems with their budget. Yeah. I, I started covering her. You're exactly right. I was with the Idaho Falls Post-Register in 2011 uh, when she ascended to become the uh, the chairperson of the House Health and Welfare Committee. Uh, and so I've known her and, and covered her since then. But there were several mistakes the lieutenant governor made that may have alienated her, even among conservatives uh, who may have been looking for uh, an alternative. But uh, we talk about the budget, right? She withheld public records, which the Idaho Press Club filed Mm -hmm. a lawsuit to obtain and won. Uh, She was on the hook for legal fees. Uh, Heading into the primary election, state officials were warning her that she was going to have a budget deficit. She's no longer working with a paid staff. There were complaints about her limited office hours possibly being violating a section of state law requiring uh, statewide offices to essentially be open from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on weekdays. She spoke at a, uh, she delivered videotaped remarks to a national conference that was attended by white supremacists Mm -hmm. and people who expressed anti-Semitic views. Uh, She didn't really apologize for that. Between that and the budget shortfall, and acting like the budget shortfall wasn't a big idea, big deal. Those may have been some mistakes that the lieutenant governor made. I mean, one thing I found that was really interesting, though, the morning after the election, going back through the results, I want to take you back to 2018. Lieutenant Governor McGeehan was running for lieutenant governor that year. She was in a five-way primary race. She got about 28% of the right. vote and won that primary 
Fast forward to this year's gubernatorial primary, she got about, what, 32, 33%, like Dr. Witt said, and she finished a distant second. There's several reasons why. I think there were stronger candidates overall in that lieutenant governor's primary four years ago. There were less experienced, um, less recognizable candidates in the governor's race this year. Uh, aside from the top three, the bottom five all got less than 2% in that governor's race. So it's fascinating that she actually got a larger statewide percentage of the vote in her primary, but lost in a distant second place. And didn't do very well in her part of the state. She lost her home county of Bonneville, yeah. Well, I think it's important to put the those percentages in the appropriate context, right? So if you get 30% of the primary vote, which is 30% of the voters, right, that's, that's not very many people statewide, right? So the it's it's a little bit of a little bit right mm-hmm. so she mm-hmm. uh, didn't I mean her vote represents if you compare to the nearly one million voters right it's not a very impressive showing right it seemed like and this is maybe a segue to talk a little bit more about the superintendents races I looked at the breakdowns in the governor's race and the lieutenant governor's race and the superintendents race the three mainstream candidates, Brad Little, Scott Bedke, Debbie Critchfield, all did really well in Southern Idaho, all did really well in these rural counties in the mountain time zone, where all three kind of have some rural rural roots. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, really, and I think really played out in the superintendent's race, so maybe mm-hmm. let's talk more about the superintendent's race. Debbie Critchfield found a lane that had served Sherry Ibarra well in the two previous elections. Debbie Critchfield worked hard in this campaign. Uh, She raised a lot of money. She was campaigning uh, into 2021. Uh, She stepped aside from her role as the president of the State Board of Education, so she was already known in education circles, and she really spent uh, about a year leading up to the primary, raising money, going across the state, meeting with education groups, engaging with people. You know, I saw... Um, photos and videos from small events. She would come and talk to small groups of people individually and make her way all across the state. And so that's kind of the traditional approach, whereas Superintendent Ibarra, I I, I think in every race that I've covered, a little bit non-traditional approach, Mm -hmm. didn't focus on fundraising, didn't have a lot of active campaign events. Now, there were several forums among the superintendent candidates, as Idaho Education News covered, but... uh, Uh, You know, during her previous two election efforts in 2014 and 2018, uh, Superintendent Ybarra ran a low-key campaign and came out on top. I think she ran kind of a low-key campaign this year and and finished in third place. And so that was a little surprising to me. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was surprising leading into this race, and maybe it led to the result that we saw, Dr. Wade, is the money. Mm -hmm. Debbie Critchfield raised more than $300,000 for this primary, and it is head and shoulders more than we've seen in contested primaries in the state superintendent's race. And we've seen candidates maybe thirty, fifty thousand dollars uh for a contested primary in the superintendent's race. All of a sudden you've got a candidate with three hundred thousand dollars. What kind of a difference does that make in a down ticket race like that? Well it apparently makes enough difference <laughs> to win. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, she was uh she had a lot of media buys, a lot of television commercials, a lot of mailers, uh Critchfield did. And that's the kind of thing that we didn't see a lot of from the Ybarra campaign. And so I think she 
I, I mean, it sounds bad, but you you buy name familiarity by bombarding the television viewers with advertisements. You know, here's who I am. Here's what I'm interested in. And she kind of earned that name recognition that on the face of it, I would have thought Ibarra would have had with voters, given that this is her third term she's mm-hmm. running. Yeah, sure. It was seeking a third term. But it felt, as I watched it and I watched the returns, that Ibarra was an incumbent who got squeezed out of a lane. I mean, yep. Critchfield got the mainstream. She did really well in southern Idaho in counties that had saved Sherry Ibarra in previous primaries. Brandon Durst, as we would have expected, he got the hardcore right-wing vote. And all of a sudden, you've got an incumbent, doesn't have a lot of money, may have better name ID because she's an incumbent, but where's her path to victory? Well, I think that her style is what edged her out, right? You know, that it not almost passive approach to the campaign, and Critchfield was right up there, and it was enough to win. I was concerned when, the, when we started looking at returns, I thought, oh my goodness, what's going to happen if Critchfield and Ybarra split the more traditional Republican mm-hmm. vote and, and Durst uh, slips in, you know? And I, so I was kind of surprised at the way that it rolled out because it didn't look like that at all. It was really uh, Critchfield's race. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised by the Attorney General's race? I was. And um, I know that there are parts of the party who are, are really wishing for that office to be more of a bully pulpit, you know, to be filing lawsuits all over the place to, you know, kind of fight the culture wars where they need to be fought. And Wasden, uh, I think it was the statesman, dis- described him as calling balls and strikes. You know, he's that, just, that's he's been very, his favorite phrase about it. The, yeah. That's his job description. You know, and, and, and maybe there is a hunger for the attorney general to be out in front and, and, and making these kind of policy statements. We don't talk about it much, but it's actually a big office. There are a number of deputy AGs that are housed in agencies, you know, all over the state. It's not just about pontificating. You really need to be managing a large staff and a large budget. And, you know, we really didn't hear much from any of the candidates about their managerial skills to do that. So anyway, I guess we got to put some more pennies in that let's pass a dumb law and then defend it. Fund, whatever that's called. The Constitutional called. Defense Thank you. Fund. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's the official name. Yeah, for it. because we're going to be doing that more. That that was clearly what uh, Labrador, Mr. Labrador and Mr. Meckember were talking about. Meckember. Yeah. And Clark, as one who covers state government, covers the legislature, I, you're probably going to be really watching very closely, assuming that Labrador gets the, the election, assuming he wins in the fall how different this attorney general's office might look, their, their approach to providing legal advice to state agencies, to legislators, and, and who's actually dispensing that advice? I mean, who stays? Yeah, it's, it's like Dr. Witt just mentioned a moment ago. Uh, attorney General Wasden had been known for calling balls and strikes. He would issue uh, an opinion saying, we think this bill could be unconstitutional. We think this bill could be challenged and thrown out in the court of law. Whereas in the debates, former Congressman Raul Labrador talked about being an ally with the legislature, talked about pushing for policy changes, not just being sort of uh, calling balls and strikes, defending the state when necessary, talking about is this constitutional or not constitutional. It sounded like he talked about more of an active policy setting role. So one thing I'm going to be watching, and I think we can talk about it also in a minute, 
if we do believe that the Idaho Senate is moving further to the right and they have a champion in Raul Labrador, mm -hmm. what kinds of bills that maybe got hung up in previous legislative sessions would now pass the Senate and wind up on the desk of Governor Brad Little. Uh, we think about during the 2022 legislative session where all of the bills that would have made dramatic changes to voting uh, and voter registration laws, those bills passed the House, were never considered uh, in the Senate. House Bill 675, which would have made it a felony uh, to provide hormone therapy or gender reassignment surgery to a child, uh, that was never heard in the Idaho Senate. House Bill 666, which would have removed legal protections for librarians, teachers and professors, museum staff, uh, for any information that was, quote, harmful to children, that bill passed the Idaho House was never heard in the Idaho Senate. So now, will some of those make their way through the legislature, uh, have an ally or a champion in a new Attorney General, Raul Labrador, assuming he goes on to win in November, and then what kind of decisions might Governor Brad Little have to make? Well, let's talk about this legislative upheaval, because I think that kind of leads into sure. that topic that I think is maybe the biggest takeaway from this election. Whether it's 19 incumbents or 20 incumbents, we can flip a coin and, and do interpretation. A lot of incumbents lost on Tuesday. 42 legislators at least will be new. This is a whole different legislature and maybe a whole different tone in the legislature, especially. I was, I was just looking through JFAC. That's the Joint Budget Committee yeah. uh, that meets every day and, and it sets the state budgets. Um, Based on the retirements from earlier this year and Tuesday's primary losses, it looks like 11 out of mm -hmm. 20 members of JFAC will be brand new, including the chairs and the vice chairs, will be brand new in 2023. The way I kind of look at it is maybe two of those 11 were very conservative members of the House, thinking about Representative Nate and Representative Giddings, who will not be returning to the legislature, and eight or nine of the others were sort of the traditional establishment uh, Republicans. And so why is JFAC such an important committee? That's the committee that sets our state budget, so we're talking about the funding levels for K-12 public education, for higher education, for health and welfare, all of those budgets, in addition to the Library Commission budget, have been under attack by conservative over the past two legislative sessions with widespread changes to JFAC, to JFAC leadership, a new Speaker of the House, by the way, in 2023. Yeah. What are the funding levels that we're gonna see for health and welfare, for education, uh, for libraries? And so that's just one of many uh, things that I'm gonna watch, but I'd, I'd love to and, know and, what and Dr. What policy approach yeah. does that budget committee pick? Because for years it's been kind of this yeah. technical dollars and cents committee, trying not to stray too much into policy, leaving that to the other committees. Who knows what this new JFAC will look like? Yeah, I, I don't know what it's gonna look like, but what I've seen over the last several years is a willingness for JFAC to use the budget as a policy stick, right? So instead of the germane committee, maybe education or health and welfare, really wrestling with the content of the policy, the members on the JFAC don't like whatever's happening in an agency, say like Boise State, so they use the budget to try to you know, beat the agency into submission. Instead of having the appropriate 
germane committee or substantive committee deal with that. We're seeing that coming out of JFEC. So it's not just the budget committee anymore, it's the everything committee. And it is taking power away from those traditional standing committees that, um, at least it was my impression, were always the generator of the policy things. And I kind of see the that coming from the budget makers now. Before we get too far along into what the 2023 session is going to look like, I mean, we have an election in the fall. How do you see what happened in this primary affecting the general election? Does it does it change the path forward for Democrats to try to gain inroads in the legislature or even win one of these statewide races? Well, I think we have to start with the fact that the Democrats didn't even have a candidate in 59 of the legislative races. Yes. Okay. So that, if you want a snapshot of how are the Democrats doing, you know, they're, they're I would not say... recruiting enough candidates to... Uh, yeah, they're conceding the majority yeah. in the in the legislature before the primary even begins. So there's there's that. The second thing is this, the voters of Idaho have not elected a statewide Democrat since 2003, I think, or 2002, two, 2002, Maryland. right? Yeah. So That's she her term ended in 2007, so that was like the last time. So, you know, if the past is a predictor of the future, I would say, you know, we're going to end up talking about Republicans again in November because they're going to win everything. Mm -hmm. But there's one big change, and that's if Roe versus Wade is actually going to be overturned, I think that that presents an it just might poke the bear, right? How many voters who are in those 300,000 unaffiliated voters in Idaho are interested in issues of choice and contraception and, and are going to activate to try to prevent the loss of those rights between now and November? It's the only thing I see the Democrats really have that they could run on that might get some steam. If you roll the tape way back in 1990 or 1992, yeah, it was abortion and the threat to access to uh, abortion services that got everybody mobilized. And we had, it was the last time the Idaho Senate was evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans was in that term. Governor Andrews <laughs> vetoed that bill and yeah. went on to win re-election. Right, yeah. but, and I was going to say, it's a, it was a very different Democratic Party in 1990. You had an incumbent right. Democratic governor. You had a sitting congressman, a Democrat, and Richard Stallings. The Democrats were a viable party in 1990. I think Larry, Larry LaRocca was elected to Congress He won in 1990. Right. He was in on that wave. This Democratic Party right now, it's not even clear who the Democratic nominee for governor is right now. Right. Um, it, it does look like the write-in campaign uh, likely failed, but we don't have the breakdown right. by name. That was sort of a little bit of a surprise for me on, on Tuesday night, but I guess it makes sense uh, because each write-in ballot has to be reviewed manually. They have to throw out um, nonsense like votes for Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse, and so I guess it'll take some time. But it doesn't look like there were enough raw write-in votes, period. Right. Um, but yeah, the Democrats, they weren't able to re recruit candidates to run in, in even half of the legislative races. So we know off the bat, the Republican supermajority will be intact no matter what happens in November. I, I really like what Dr. Witt said about uh, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, is there uh, movement? Because we know of the huge numbers, I think she said 300,000 
uh, unaffiliated or independent voters in the state of Idaho and, and whether that galvanizes them or become an issue. On the smaller level, um, with redistricting, there could be a couple of interesting races. I don't know. Always, I think, kind of those West Boise legislative yeah. races was a District 15 that had been kind of mm-hmm. a purple district going back and forth between red and blue. That could be a battleground. I think there's a couple of new candidates uh, running this year. That may be an area that I look at where... Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, maybe nipping at the edges here a little bit mm-hmm. in terms of some legislative races that are swing races. You talk about District 15. Cody Galloway, the conservative Republican candidate, won that Senate primary. That is a purple district. It's a conceivable that a Democrat uh, could win that Senate race. It's conceivable that uh, David Nelson, the senator from Moscow, beats Dan Foreman in the general up, up, up Moscow way. District 26 is kind of a swing district. But we're talking not about the fringes. We're not talking about yeah. a, a wave election because there may not be enough candidates for yeah, some of that. That's true. I, I do think, you know, <laughs> when the Supreme Court was the way it was, Republicans could fall all over themselves going for every single kind of limitation on abortion they could think of. You know, creativity in, in finding new ways to limit or eliminate access to abortion. Now that you might have to actually live with your choices about what you want to do in abortion policy, you're going to have to stand by and live by no exceptions for rape or incest, no exceptions for life for the mother. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I do think fragment the electorate, and and there's not 100% of the people who want to force victims of rape to carry a pregnancy to term. I mean, when you have to live with that, I think you're going to start to see a little shift. It may not be enough to win a bunch of districts, but um, I'm not sure that every voter in Idaho is comfortable with the extremes to which the Republican Party says they want to take the issue of choice. And it may, may pump a little life into a lifeless Democratic Party. Yeah, I, I talked with the president of the uh Idaho Family Policy Center, I believe it was, who said he uh, supports uh, making abortion uh, akin to murder in the state of Idaho when it comes to the medical professional who provides the abortion. Uh, We heard the chairman of the House State Affairs Committee go on Idaho Reports a couple of weeks ago, I want to say on May 6th, uh, and talk about an openness to hearing legislation that would ban uh, contraception, an emergency contraception in the Plan B pill. Uh, and so I think Dr. Witt just made some really excellent points about having to be accountable for these positions and sort of live with them now. Uh, and if the Republican Party or if conservatives in the Republican Party pursue policies that would make abortion be considered murder in the state of Idaho or that would outlaw or criminalize contraception, uh, they could be really interesting politically. Just one quick last question, uh, looking ahead to the fall. The Reclaim Idaho initiative is almost certainly going to be on the ballot. How does that affect, perhaps, uh, turnout? How does that affect, does that mobilize uh, voters in a different way? Again, in some of these races, that might be swing races. I mean, I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. I've covered the Reclaim Idaho ballot initiative. We know about their success with Medicaid expansion, which I want to say was in 2018. Uh, They have done this before. They have got a ballot initiative over the finish line, and it will take a a, a simple majority to become effective if, if voters go that way. That could bring out a new set of voters. Uh, perhaps it could give people a reason to come out and vote in November 
if perhaps they didn't have a candidate that they supported in their district, they know they can go out and, and vote uh, how they feel on, on the uh, quality education initiative. I'm not sure what kind of numbers we're talking about, um, but it could bring out um, new voters, people who are interested in a specific issue, which is increasing funding uh, for education at the expense of raising taxes uh, for corporations and for the wealthiest Idahoans who are making more than $250,000 a year individually. Mm -hmm. I think that the uh, Medicaid expansion ballot measure is a good illustration of how complex the voters can be, mm -hmm. okay? That you would have said, oh, look, it's such a Republican state. There's no way they're going to pass this thing. The legislature's opposed. The party's opposed. And the Medicaid expansion was approved with, what, 65% A great success in 2018, yes. almost more popular than any individual candidate on the ballot, if I remember correctly. So when I look at this, this upcoming measure about education, it, I, I think of two things. One is the highest number of votes that any statewide candidate gets is usually from Democrats, right, on the Democrat side is the superintendent of public instruction. That tells me the, the voters are keeping one eye, at least, on that race. It has often been close within several percentage points, which is unusual given the last many cycles, right, where the gubernatorial candidate might get 30% or 35 on a good day. So the fact that this is about education, voters care about education, they tend to vote for Democrats more when it's dealing with education, I think it has a good chance. And like you said, if there's one thing we saw on Tuesday, it was another example of how unpredictable Idaho voters can be. Yes. Nominated Brad Little, at the same time they nominated Raul Labrador. They yes. booted out some of those conservative legislators in, in the state house and some of the more moderate legislators. So who knows what we'll be talking about in six and months. Dr. Witt's exactly right. I mean, look at uh, Boise State public policy serving year after year showing education is a top priority consistently for Idahoans across the board. Uh, and so she's exactly right. Well, remember the Luna laws. Mm -hmm. uh, when mm -hmm. the legislature got out too far ahead of where the uh, patrons of the school districts wanted to be, they used the referendum to uh, get rid of all three of those Luna laws. And that's uh, for, most, for people who've been here a while, you remember that? I think it was around 2015, 2016. 2012 was the, uh, the Oh, my goodness, yep. it's even further back. So there is, you know, that showed me there can be a point where you go too far and the voters say, come back. And on education, I think that that, uh, that may very well happen in the fall. So much to break down from this week. I appreciate you both taking the time. Dr. Witt, Clark, always good to have you here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. A lot of fun. Again, that was Stephanie Witt from Boise State University and Clark Corbin from the Idaho Capital Sun. If you're missing any coverage from this week's primary election, we have you covered at idahoednews.org. We have all of the numbers, all of the results. Devin Bodkin takes a closer look at the state superintendent's primary. I take a closer look at this upheaval that we saw in the legislature. 20 incumbent legislators lost on Tuesday. Big implications for committee assignments, for leadership elections, for education policy. A lot to unwrap, a lot to unravel. We, we don't have all the answers yet, obviously, but I, I look at some of the issues and some of the things to watch out for at the State House in January. Also take a closer look at what this election means in terms of the 
power struggle between mainstream Republicans and hardline conservatives. Bottom line, both sides uh, got some big wins in this primary. So the battle for supremacy in the Republican Party, I think, is going to go on at least through the next election cycle and who knows for how much longer. I take a closer look at that. And we'll have all sorts of news next week that may not have to do with elections, but we'll be uh, busy uh, keeping you posted on everything that has to do with education. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Idaho News. Uh, we tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on any breaking news items. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there. And check back next week for another edition of the podcast. I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good week. 